Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm sure you've heard we're, we're bouncing back and forth. We just want to keep you on your toes. You don't want to be in any environment too long, get too comfortable. And so I like, I like the classroom as well, but we were crowded in here week one, but the air conditioning is broken next door in the, in the multipurpose room. So um, it would have been uh, a little bit steamier to do it in the multipurpose room. So we moved back. So who knows where we're doing it next week? You just have to come and find out. That's part of the fun of the class. Yep, that's right. So, um, so we're going get, to get started in, uh, in just a minute here. You can go ahead and pull your Bibles out and uh, turn to Psalm 119. And let me, let me pray for us. God, we're grateful once again as we come to your word. And we sit under your word because it has authority over our lives, because um, you have given your word authority over our lives. And so we come together for just a, a short period of time and study your word and ask that you'd be gracious to us during this time, that you would speak to us through your word during this time, that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law tonight, that we would be stirred up in fresh ways um, that we would be challenged to actions, that we would be encouraged by the benefits of your word. We thank you for your grace shown us in that you have spoken to us. Amen. Um, well, welcome to our, our third week in Psalm 119. If you were with us two weeks ago, we were near the end of Psalm 119 in verses 161 to 168. And we were talking about the psalmist's affections for God's word. We were looking at that stanza that unpacks the psalmist's affections. Last week, we were looking at uh, verses 59 to 64. We were talking about the psalmist's resolve to keep God's word. And this week, we're going to be just one stanza in front of that, verses 49 to 56. So you can go ahead and turn there just for interest's sake. These are eight verses that all begin with the Hebrew letter Zion. And the Hebrew letter Zion does not come at the end of the Hebrew alphabet, kind of comes in the middle. Um, All begin with Z. And the basic subject of these eight verses is the benefits the psalmist has from God's word. The benefits the psalmist has from God's word. Maybe more than any other stanza in Psalm 119, and you can check me on this, you can go back and read, there might be another stanza that competes, but maybe more than any other stanza in Psalm 119, the benefits from God's word are presented consistently and clearly in these eight verses. Hope, comfort, life, blessing. The psalmist is going on and on about the benefits that he has from God's word. What I found interesting as I was looking at this stanza this week on the benefits presented here is that it's placed against an unexpected backdrop. And this is what I mean. Maybe more than any other stanza in Psalm 119, the hardships of the psalmist's life are presented consistently and clearly in these eight verses. So you have this contrast. We've got the benefits from God's word, but we've got the hardships of life. He talks about his affliction in verse 50. The insolent utterly deride him in verse 51, and we'll unpack what that means. He speaks of the wicked in verse 53. He sings in his sojourning in verse 54. He remembers in the night in verse 55. So at least in my mind, this backdrop doesn't seem to gel with the theme of this stanza. The stanza is talking about benefits, but the psalmist is experiencing hardships. 
So if the psalmist, in my opinion, is going to wax poetic about the benefits he receives from God's word, wouldn't a backdrop of physical blessing and material prosperity be better to talk about this in? Or maybe, a little bit more spiritual, the backdrop of eternity. He's spending eternity in God's presence. The blessings that that have been won for God's people, that might be a better backdrop to speak about the benefits from God's word. But the psalmist doesn't write this stanza. It's a backdrop of physical blessings and material prosperity. He doesn't even write this against the backdrop of eternity. He writes this stanza about the benefits of God's word against the backdrop of the hardships of life. He writes this in the house of his sojourning. And what I mean to say by this might be more clear if we look at an example. Many people think David wrote Psalm 119, and we're not sure if David wrote Psalm 119 or not, but let's take David as an example. If David wrote Psalm 119. If David wrote Psalm 119 and he came to this stanza where he's recounting the benefits that he's received from God's word, and you looked at David's life recorded for us in the historical books in the Old Testament, wouldn't you think that David would sit down to write a section like this when he's sitting in his palace at the end of his career, he has peace on all sides, he's got this wonderful building that he's built for himself? But what's interesting is, if David wrote Psalm 119, This stanza wasn't written from a palace. It would have been written when he was fleeing from Paul and Saul and living in caves in the wilderness or when he was exiled from Jerusalem by his son Absalom. The stanza that we have here on the benefits of God's word isn't written from the palace. It's written from the house of sojourning. It's not written for those who have arrived at their place of rest to recount the blessings they now enjoy because all their hardships are over and life is easy. It's written for those who are struggling along the way. It's written for those who are afflicted, for those who are verbally harassed by the wicked, for those who are in the dark, for those who are far from their destination, for those who long for their homeland and don't know when they're going back. That's what this stanza is written for. And as it turns out, as strange as this backdrop might be in Psalm 119, 49 to 56, the psalmist knows better than I do. One of the wonders of God's word is it doesn't just hold benefits out for us when we're in times of prosperity. It doesn't just point forward to benefits to be enjoyed in eternity. God's word gives hope, comfort, life, and blessing to those of us who are struggling along the way. Those of us who are afflicted, Those of us who are harassed by the wicked, those of us who are in the dark, God's word comes to us when we are far from our homeland. It comes to us in the house of our sojourning, and it gives us songs to sing. This stanza reminds us that we can celebrate the benefits of God's word now. Not just in times of physical blessing and material prosperity. Not just when we arrive in eternity, all our hardships have passed. But as we're struggling along the way in the house of our sojourning, hope, comfort, life, and blessing. So let's read these verses, see these benefits, and see the hardships of the psalmist in these verses as well. Starting in verse 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. 
Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts. So let's start by looking at verse 49. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. As you'll see as we're going through these verses, remembrance is an important theme in this stanza. If you look forward to verse 52, the psalmist is comforted by his remembrance of God's rules from of old. And if you look in verse 55, the psalmist remembers God's covenant name in the night. These are all the same word in Hebrew. But in verse 49, it's not the psalmist who is remembering God's word. It's the psalmist calling God to remember his word. The stanza that we looked at last week had something very similar in verse 58. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. The psalmist is going boldly to the throne of grace. He's reminding God of his promises. And here he's doing something similar. But he's also drawing on this image. The image of a servant and his master. He compares himself to his servant. And he compares God to the master of a house. Now, as he uses this imagery, he is highlighting that a vast gulf exists between God as the creator of the universe and him as one of God's creation. Even with a master's most trusted servants, there's always this clear sense that he is the master of the house and they are not. And so what he's saying is, even though God has drawn near to his people, there is always a clear distinction between the creator and his creation. In short, The psalmist knows his place. He's one of God's servants. So he's not making this arrogant command to God. He's making a humble request to a gracious master. And that's the second thing that this image highlights, the gracious character of God. God has spoken to his servant in such a way that it stirs up hope in him. You see trust in this relationship. Even though it'd be ridiculous to think that the master would forget one of his promises to his servant, the type of relationship exists here where the servant can freely go to his master and say, hey, do you remember this? Even to ask something of his master. And the master's character is of such quality, the servant believes he will actually keep his word. So the benefit that he receives from the master's word is hope. He can remind his master of his promises have confidence that his master is actually going to listen to him, but then have hope that his master is going to do what he says. I would call this gracious condescension. God graciously stooping down, even though he shouldn't have this type of relationship with his servant, he does. Stooping down, breaking all the norms of the master-servant relationship, but this is the nature of our gracious God. And what's so interesting for us is our gracious God not only considers us servants, but friends. At the Last Supper, Jesus says this to his disciples in John fifteen fifteen. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. And if that's not enough, not only friends but children. Paul says this in Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The psalmist is going confidently to God as his master and reminding him of these promises that he has made. How much more confident can we be? God is our friend and our loving father. How much more confidently can we go to him and remind him of his promises? Charles Spurgeon says, If God's word to us as his servants is so precious, what shall we say of his word to us as his sons? What shall we say? We are his children brought into his family. If the psalmist can go to him boldly as a servant, how much more can we as sons and daughters? What a wonderful benefit this is for us as believers in Jesus. God's promises laid out in God's word are our promises. And these are promises that were given by our master with full rights to go to him and remind him of these promises with confidence that he is going to graciously listen to us and that he will keep his word because he's a good master. And that gives us hope. And a reminder for us as well that he is much more than a master. He's also a faithful friend and a loving father. And so we can go to God and say, remember your word to your friend. Remember your word to your child. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. God's word not only provides hope for the psalmist, but also comfort and life. And comfort and life in the most unlikely of places. Comfort and life in the midst of the psalmist's affliction. Now, in our first two weeks in the series, we have seen the psalmist is not writing Psalm 119 in this bubble. He's not free from the cares of life. He's not free from hardships. In verse 61, you remember, we were hearing about the cords of the wicked ensnaring him. In verse 161, we heard about princes persecuting him without cause. And as I've already mentioned, this stanza that we're in tonight about the benefits of God's word talks about his affliction more than any other. This stanza shows that God's word provides benefits for the psalmist in the midst of these hardships of life. God's word doesn't say, I know things are tough, but stick it out and things are bound to get better. God's word says, I know things are tough. I'm here to provide comfort and life for you even if things never get better. There's a difference between those two. And what type of comfort God provides in the midst of this affliction is clear in the second half of the verse. Your promise gives me life. Now this verb gives is in the perfect tense. It's probably not looking to the future. Our minds might naturally go to eternal life. But with this perfect tense, the psalmist is talking about a type of life that God has already given him. A type of life that's already present in his affliction. And what it seems to me that he's talking about is what we might think of as the rough Old Testament equivalent of the fruits of the Spirit. A person who is planted and flourishing by God's grace, producing fruit that is unexplainable apart from the work of God. You can read about something like that in Psalm 1. Life in the midst of affliction that's produced by the word of God at work in the hearts of God's people. Let me say that again. Life in the midst of affliction produced by the word of God at work in the hearts of God's people. Things like this. Love for enemies. Joy in the midst of pain. Peace in the midst of turmoil. Patience toward persecutors. 
kindness in the face of hatred, goodness in the midst of compromise, faithfulness instead of flightiness, gentleness toward the harsh, self-control in temptation, life that rises above the fallen standards of our fallen world. This is something supernatural and different, something that is even present, life that is even present in the midst of affliction. By God's grace for us under the new covenant, this abundant life is ours through God's gift of his Holy Spirit. By God's grace, this gift is ours, this comfort is ours, and this life is ours in the midst of affliction. We produce things that don't make sense in our world. Life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. So as sweet as God's word is to the psalmist, the reality is there are many around him who bitterly speak against those who follow God's word. And so one of the psalmist's hardships specifically is made clear. The insolent utterly deride me. The ESV uses these two words that I don't use very much in my vocabulary, insolent and deride. So I want to define those. The psalmist calls his opponents the insolent. The insolence. The insolent means showing a rude and arrogant lack of respect. A rude and arrogant lack of respect. This Hebrew word could be translated the arrogant, the proud, the haughty, those not humble to the Lord. And these opponents deride the psalmist. Deride means express contempt for or ridicule. Could also be translated mock, scorn, make fun of. So, my rough translation the proud mock me to the extreme. The proud mock me to the extreme. And the reason for this mocking is implied in the second half of the verse. But I do not turn away from your law. The implication is he is mocked because he is following the way of God's word. But the mocking of the proud doesn't cause the psalmist to turn from the way of God's word. In fact, it's one of my favorite word pictures from the Old Testament illustrates what's happening here. Deuteronomy 5.32 says this. I love this picture. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. This crops up all over the Old Testament when it's talking about obedience, staying on the path. You shall not turn to the right hand or to the left. This was first brought up in the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's included in the expectations of the kings of Israel. It's re-emphasized by Joshua when they're conquering the promised land. The psalmist is living this type of life. He's not turning aside to the right hand or to the left from God's word. The proud are railing against him with all their might that he would do that very thing, but he is staying on God's path. One of the... 532. Yep. One of the reasons we need a vocal proponent like the psalmist in Psalm 119, a vocal proponent of God's word who spends 176 verses reminding us of why God's word is great, that God stoops down to speak to us. One of the reasons we need that is the world is filled with vocal opponents of God's word. There are many that will surround us and rail against us clinging and holding fast to God's word. And the psalmist is standing on the other side shouting no. He's clinging to God's word. The sensible don't turn away from God's word. They follow it to hope and comfort in life. And he's pleading with us as his readers, don't listen to them. Listen to God's word. 
When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Now there appears to be a close connection between verses 51 and 52, and that connection becomes clear when you realize the Hebrew word translated rules here, it could also be translated judgments, or proclamations of a legal verdict, or justice. The psalmist has just been complaining, and I mean that in the biblical sense of the word. He's, he's lifting up these complaints about the mocking that he's getting at the hands of the proud. Now he's taking comfort as he remembers God's judgments of old. In God's word, the psalmist sees the just judgments of God pronounced throughout history, and it provides comfort for him. What he's saying is, I've got these guys in front of me railing against me because I'm intent on following God's word and I'm not seeing justice here, but I know God is just. I see it in his words. God's word powerfully proclaims that God is patient, but he's not blind to the sufferings of his people at the hands of the proud. In God's grace, he delays judgment to allow the wicked to turn from their sins and cast themselves on his mercy. And we need to praise God that he does that because God's patience allows us to repent. But also in God's righteousness, his judgment won't be delayed forever. Confronted by the rampant injustices of our world, our hearts cry out for just judgments made by a just judge. And we need to remember our judge is patient and merciful and good, but he is also righteous and holy. God's judgments of old, his historical judgments contained in scripture proclaim judgment is coming. And the psalmist is actually taking comfort in that. And this is a terrifying prospect to the wicked. And this should be a heartbreaking prospect for us as God's people that we would not desire for any to perish. But it is also a comfort for us in a world that is covered in injustice, that justice is coming. In fact, God's judgments of old are a comfort for us that God has actively been at work correcting injustices and righting wrongs since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. God's not standing on the sideline watching these things happen inactive, God's word is proof that God has consistently involved himself in the events of the world that he created to judge the wicked and correct injustice. That should comfort us. What a comfort it is for us in the midst of affliction to know that from days of old, God has been at work righting the wrongs of our world. He has. And also for us to know his son is coming again in judgment. Injustice will, injustice will be no more. That should be a comfort for us. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Now you've probably picked up, if you've been at some of my classes, I typically use the ESV, and for whatever reason, I feel like the ESV failed me this week. Um, the translators decided to use a bunch of $10 words in this stanza, and so I had to break out dictionary.com to look up a lot of these. I don't talk about hot indignation. Um, indignation is anger or annoyance provoked by what is perceived as unfair treatment. Let me make that even more simple because I need that. This could also be translated raging or irritation. It's the same word used in Psalm 11 verse 6 for a scorching wind of judgment. How's that for a word picture? 
a scorching wind of judgment. So I think it's a bit more straightforward for us to say, rage overtakes me because of the wicked. That's a strong statement. Rage overtakes me because of the wicked. And the psalmist defines the wicked in this way. Those who forsake your law. Rage overtakes me. The most challenging thing for me about verse 53 is that the psalmist is more upset about how the wicked treat God than about how they treat him. We've been reading that the psalmist is afflicted, the psalmist is mocked by the prideful, but he doesn't appear bitter. He isn't consumed with his own sufferings, his own hardships. He isn't consumed with any unfair treatment that he's receiving, although it does seem like he's receiving quite a bit. Rage wells up in him because these wicked men forsake God's law. Amazingly, the psalmist isn't consumed by the fact that he isn't getting what he deserves. He's raging because God isn't getting what God deserves. God is getting robbed of the glory and honor and praise that he deserves from these lives of these men who are forsaking his word in his natural response, hot indignation. Hot indignation. Now to be fair, and I think this is a a point to be made from this verse, this verse says nothing about actions taken by the psalmist because of his rage. It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say that he goes and gives these men a tongue lashing. It doesn't say that the psalmist gets violent with these men to defend God's honor. And I think the silence of this verse speaks volumes. It's not talking about actions taken against people who forsake God's law. It's talking about God's honor in our heart. This verse asks us the question, the uncomfortable question, do I care when God isn't getting what he deserves? Do I care? From my own life? From the lives of people around me? Is my heart stirred at all when God's law is forsaken? Am I heartbroken when God is robbed of the glory and honor and praise that he deserves? Do I care? Do I care? Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. This is such an interesting contrast. For the psalmist, the wicked are those who forsake God's word. The righteous are those who sing God's word. Singing God's word, even in the house of their sojourning. If somehow there is any question in our minds about the vitality of the psalmist's religion, that he's just writing this treatise on God's word and it's not really real to him, that question is answered right here. If there was any thought in the reader's mind that the psalmist's reverence for God and his word is cold and dead and lifeless, that thought vanishes in verse 54. Your statutes have been my songs. God's words are not lifeless or irrelevant or boring. And the God of the Bible is not a distant and uninvolved deity. For the psalmist, these things are the subjects of the most boisterous ballad, the anthem of the most heartfelt chorus, the lyrics to the most wonderful song ever written. What he's saying is, yes, God's word is meant to be read and studied and meditated on and memorized and taught, but it is also meant to be sung. How dare we think that it's lifeless or irrelevant or boring? How dare we make it something that's lifeless or irrelevant or boring? 
How dare we constrain it to our own minds or to a set of actions or a jot in a journal or a set period of time during our day? How dare we bottle God's word up instead of allowing it to pour forth from our mouths in a stream of unbroken praise? Your statutes have been my songs. Spurgeon says, When religion is set to music, it goes well. When we sing in the way of the Lord, it shows that our hearts are in them. Can we sing the truths that we learn from God's word? Does it make our hearts sing? Does God himself, as he reveals himself in scripture, does he make us sing? Spurgeon continues, Ours are pilgrim psalms, songs of degrees, songs as we're heading up to Jerusalem, But they are such as we may sing throughout eternity. For the statutes of the Lord are the psalmody of heaven itself. The statutes of the Lord are the psalmody of heaven itself. What he's saying is, we sing in the house of our sojourning. God's word gives us a song for along the way. We aren't singing because we've arrived at our destination. This is not our home. We sing songs of praise for joys that we experience along the way. We sing songs of of lament for hardships and trials. We sing songs of thanksgiving for provision on our journey. But we sing. We sing. Even in the house of our sojourning. The righteous are those who sing God's word. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Remembrance is mentioned for the third time in this stanza. The night is when we're alone. The night is the time when the thoughts that have been buzzing in the background all day, the thoughts that have been crowded out by the busyness of our lives come floating to the surface of our minds. The night is the time when worries, fears, anxieties, doubts all come flooding into our thoughts. Last week in verse 62, we learned that night was a time of praise for the psalmist. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Here we learn the night is also a time of remembrance for the psalmist. I remember your name in the night. We need to be reminded again and again of the personal nature of God's word. God's word isn't revealing an empty set of facts to us. It is revealing a person. The personal God. In remembering God's word, the psalmist remembers the name of the God who has revealed himself in his word. His thinking doesn't end by just recalling these verses that he's memorized or a set of truths from God's word. His thinking goes on to the personal God who stoops down to speak to him in his word. The personal God who reveals himself in his word. The personal God who says in his word, this is what I'm like, this is who I am. That's what he's remembering. And what the psalmist remembers specifically is the covenant name of the personal God, Yahweh, Yahweh. The name that God announces to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Moses is hesitant to return from the wilderness. He doesn't really want to be the guy to deliver his people from slavery. And he's in this confrontation with God at the burning bush. And in Exodus 3.13, it says this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, Yahweh. 
I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, I am has sent me to you. Yahweh. And he proceeds to make these promises through Moses to his people because that's what God does. To lead them out of slavery, to plunder the Egyptians, to lead them to the promised land, to conquer that promised land. And God does it. The God who speaks to Moses is. He is who he says he is. He does what he says he does. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. This is the covenant name that's so holy that Hebrew scribes didn't record the vowels of this name, only its consonants. They didn't want to pronounce it wrong. Yahweh, that name. This is what the psalmist remembers in the night. In verse 52, the psalmist remembers God's just judgments against his enemies and takes comfort. But here in verse 55, he remembers God's covenant faithfulness by remembering God's covenant name. He remembers God's covenant faithfulness. He not only remembers the giving of this covenant name at the burning bush, he also remembers everything that God did for his people over the next 40 plus years that he told Moses that he would do keeping his promises faithfully, proving his faithfulness to his covenants over and over and over again throughout the history of Israel. What occupies your mind in the night? Does your mind quickly default to the worries of the day? Does it quickly default to the failings and disappointments of people around you? As natural as those things might be, the psalmist is offering a different pattern of thinking to occupy our minds with. The personal God who's revealed himself to you in his word. The personal God who has told you his covenant name, Yahweh, and who has demonstrated to you in his word that he is faithful to his covenants, to his people, over and over and over and over again. What better thoughts could occupy your mind in the night? This blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts. Verse 56 is difficult to translate, and because it's difficult to translate, it's difficult to talk about what it's saying. But rendered literally, the verse would say this. This is to me because I kept your precepts. This is to me because I kept your precepts. And what I would argue the psalmist is saying is this. These blessings are mine since I have kept your word. In other words, the benefits that the psalmist has been listing throughout this stanza are his benefits because he's kept God's word. Now this might strike us as self-assured and smug, works-based righteousness, but really this is what the psalmist is saying all throughout the stanza. In verse 49, the psalmist has hope because he calls God to remember his word. In verse 50, the psalmist has comfort in life and affliction because he clings to God's promises. In verses 51 and 52, the psalmist has comfort when he's mocked by the proud because he remembers God's judgments in history. In verses 53 and 54, he rages against those who forsake God's law, but he sings about God's statutes in his sojourning. And in verse 55, he remembers God's covenant name in the night and he keeps God's law. If you had to boil down what the psalmist is saying, it's really something of common sense. It's better to obey God's word than to disobey God's word. There are benefits to keeping God's word. 
Now we need to keep in mind that the psalmist even has access to God's word because God has graciously revealed it to him. He's only able to keep God's word because of God graciously empowering him to do that. The psalmist isn't saying that keeping God's word is what's going to grant him salvation. And he's not even saying that keeping God's word is going to give him a bigger house and a nicer car. That's not what he's talking about. What he is saying is that it's worth it to call on God. It's worth it to cling to his promises. It's worth it to remember God's judgments in history. It's worth it to mourn over those who forsake God's law. It's worth it to sing God's statutes. It's worth it to remember God's covenant name. It's worth it to keep God's law. What the psalmist is saying is that in doing these things, all by God's grace, mind you, In doing these things, he has benefits in the midst of hardships and the cares of life that those who don't keep God's word can't even dream about. He has these things. Hope as one of God's servants. Comfort and life in the midst of affliction. He's comforted when the proud mock him. He sings in the house of his sojourning. These blessings are his because he keeps God's word. And by God's grace alone, These blessings are yours as you cling to God's word. Now, if you've been with us for all three weeks, you'll know that the first two weeks were a bit of a challenge from Psalm 119. Our affections were challenged by the psalmist's overflowing love for God and his word. And then last week, what we were looking at, our actions were being challenged by the psalmist's resolve to keep God's word. And ultimately, those challenges drove us to the foot of the cross. Because when we measured our affections up against the psalmist's, They're not what they should be for God and his word. When we measured our actions up against the psalmist, our actions often fall woefully short of the standard of God's word. But these challenges that we receive from Psalm 119 drove us to shift our eyes from our sins and to focus on the perfections of Jesus. Jesus' perfect affections for God and his word, his perfect obedience to the standard of God's word in our place. It drove us to cry out to God that his Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, producing these affections, producing these actions that are pleasing to him. So it's a challenging two weeks in Psalm 119. So this week, we get to be encouraged from Psalm 119. Not that those weren't an encouragement, but in this stanza, we're called to realize that in Christ, the benefits listed by the psalmist are our benefits. That's what we're called to realize. And these benefits are not only ours when life is going well and our relationships are stable and our finances are in order. These benefits are ours in the midst of affliction. When the proud mock us in the house of our sojourning in the night, these benefits listed here can't be taken from us by robbers. They can't be touched by the circumstances of life. And what's more, this is so encouraging for us, as God's people under the new covenant, As people who have turned from their sins and believed in Jesus, these benefits come into even sharper focus for us than they did for the psalmist under the old covenant. This is what I mean. As believers in Jesus, we are more than servants. We are God's friends and God's children. How much more bold can we be as God's friends and God's children in reminding our loving Father of his words to us? This is verse 49. How much more hope can we have that our loving Father will hear us and keep his words? 
Verse 50, as believers in Jesus, we've been given the wondrous gift of God's Holy Spirit to supernaturally comfort us in affliction. We've been given God's Holy Spirit to stir us up to real life, real living in situations that should naturally produce death in us. But they don't. As believers in Jesus, we are given a clear hope for life through a historical resurrection of God's own son as a first fruits of our own resurrection. That's life. Verse 51, as believers in Jesus, we've been given the example of perfect obedience and perfect confidence in God's word in the face of the mocking of the proud. As Jesus is mocked by Roman rulers and religious leaders and in the face of Satan himself, As believers in Jesus, we've seen just how seriously God takes injustice as he poured out the fullness of his wrath on his perfect son for the sins of men. We see that clearly in Jesus. We gain comfort that God takes justice so seriously that he upholds his righteousness to his own hurt. He punishes his own son to uphold his righteousness. We gain courage that God is so patient that he would provide refuge for the wicked by punishing his own son in our place. That's God's patience. We gain confidence that God's final judgment will not be delayed forever because his son is returning and he will judge the living and the dead. As believers in Jesus, our songs take on new vigor and new strength because God has more clearly revealed himself in his ways to us in his son. As believers in Jesus, we remember God's covenant name in the night because we see that God's promises to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets have been perfectly fulfilled in his son. If you're a believer in Jesus, you can be encouraged tonight by Psalm 119. This was written thousands of years ago, but these benefits have not been diluted. They're not dulled because we stand thousands of years later. The benefits held out to us by God's word are actually more clear and sharper for us on this side of the cross. My prayer is that these encouragements, these benefits would cause us to sing. That they would cause us to sing in the most unlikely of places. In the midst of affliction, when the proud mock us in the night, that these would be our songs in the house of our sojourning. As we travel through this life, until that day, when we sleep in Christ or the Lord returns, and then we'll sing these songs in eternity. Let's pray. God, you are so gracious to us. We thank you for this voice from Psalm 119, this poet who reminds us again and again of the wonders of your word. We thank you that the benefits talked about here haven't diminished over time. We thank you that they've become more clear for us in Christ. We thank you for your grace shown to us and that you speak to us. We thank you for your grace shown to us in your word that you have sent your son to take your wrath in our place, your patience, but your justice, that we might be saved through him. 
God, give us grace. Stir us up to sing the truths of your word that we would not leave cold and unchanged, but that we would leave singing along the way regardless of the circumstances of our life. Lord, we're thankful for your grace to us in Christ. Amen. Well, um, I'd like to close in a uh, pretty untraditional way. It's going to make us uncomfortable, maybe. That's good. We've talked a lot about singing tonight, and I've got a song on the flip side of your handout. How many people know this song? We've got, all right, we've got about two-thirds. I'm not a singer. This is as uncomfortable for me as it is for you. But I think it's, I think it's fitting for us to sing. And I'm going to turn the recording off before we start this. But it's fitting, it's fitting for us to sing in response to God's word that we wouldn't leave.